Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And we're really glad to have you with us as we continue our voyage rereading the Aubrey Matry novels of Patrick O'Brien. We are midway through Treason's Harbour. Mike, tell us where we got to last week and what might be coming up for us this week. Oh, thanks, Ian. Well, last week, Jack got a new mission from Commander-in-Chief Ives. He's to sail on the dromedary, march across the desert, take command of a merchant vessel with a a troop of Turkish soldiers, capture a galley carrying 5,000 French purses that's on its way to the island of Mubara. And then he's supposed to take that island before the French can fortify it and turn it into a frigate base. There's not a moment to lose as usual. He needs to get there by the 15th day of the moon. The Reverend Mr. Martin has joined the crew. Stephen sadly fell asleep, cracked his head wide open, but at least he has his diving bell along to console him here. We had a ship's dinner filled with poetry and a Ladies of Spain song fest that was joined in by Harabedian, the uh, the drogoman, the interpreter, right? And we got a chance to talk about sea shanties with Kimber's men. Yeah. So this time we have a sermon from dear Mr. Martin. We reach our first destination. We get a little more poetical have a ride across the desert, visit Africa, and learn about gins and ghouls. Ooh-hoo, ooh-hoo, ooh-hoo. Oh, Mike, that's brilliant. It's, it's almost like the gins and the ghouls were right there with us in the room. That's amazing. <laughs> well, that's good. Good too much. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Mike, we had to wait, I think, 10 chapters for the Ionian mission to actually exist. Now, we're, we're only four chapters in, and we've got some actual stuff to do. And Aubrey and his shipmates and followers and the crew of the dromedary are off on their way. Not only that, they've made great time. They've made a fantastic landfall. It's coming just as church is rigged for Sunday. And Mike, it, there's, there's loads of atmosphere here in the opening of this chapter, isn't there? The crew are excited about Sunday because they have the Sunday meal, they have grog. They know also, I think, that the Red Sea voyage that they're about to undertake might hold, as O'Brien calls it, some kind of a plum. And this good feeling, this excitement is felt by Jack as well. The book says Jack is full of the fine, bubbling excitement of his youth now that he no longer has to urge the ship on, it says, by a continual effort of will and an unreasonable contraction of the stomach muscles. And calling this the feeling of his youth, I think, is a great thing for Jack because he's been feeling old and decrepit and out of sorts from time to time, especially in the last couple of chapters, but I think, Mike, in the last few books, really. So him feeling young is great. He is, though, feeling a bit anxious that Mr. Martin appears not to be copying one of John Donne's old sermons, but he's preaching an original sermon. And, Mike, we we, we really get to savour Mr. Martin's sermon and all the things that he does and that O'Brien does with the text. The text is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And he starts out in terms that I think I'd be happy to hear if I was a 
crew member aboard the Surprise. He's talking about all the time that sailors spend sweeping ships and holystoning the deck and swabbing and painting. Even, he says, on the joyful Surprise, the most beautiful on the Mediterranean and the best sailor. And Mike, this is this is all getting good feels so far. These are all things that the crew are happy to smile at and nod along with. They really are. And and even Stephen, who doesn't usually attend these services, he's up in the mizzen top. He was watching birds and he waited too long, so he doesn't leave. So he, he stays there. He listens in. But as this cleaning and cleaning goes on and on, he kind of wonders, where's Martin going with this sermon? So he lets his mind drift off to Diana. And he also thinks about that anonymous letter he got some time back about her supposed infidelity. And he thinks about how she reminds him of his grandfather's falcon, which she says was very gentle with those she liked, but wholly irreconcilable and indeed dangerous if she was offended. And he thinks to himself, I shall never offend Diana. And just as he does, the congregation booms out. Amen. We're getting more of this kind of switching of perspective, aren't we? Almost moment by moment, we go from Stephen's world to the crew's world and then back again. And then Martin's sermon is continuing. And now the mood starts to turn a little bit. Martin says, yet what is the end of all this polishing and scouring and painting at last? The shipbreaker's yard, that is the end. The ship is sold out of the service and perhaps she spends some years as a merchantman. And I can almost feel... (laughs) The crew's chin's hitting the floor as he as he utters this terrible curse word, merchantman. But then, unless she found her or burned, she comes to the fatal yard, a mere hulk. Even the most beautiful ship, even the joyful surprise, ends as firewood and old iron. And Stephen gets to see straight away that the congregation turned from being mostly happy, especially the officers and the original surprises, who all really love their former ship, um, into looking, it says, puzzled, grim, suspicious, and hostile. And it must have been pretty pronounced because even Martin, in full sermonizing flow, notices the response, and he moves on quite quickly to talk about how men spend themselves lots of time taking care of themselves, you know, indulging in a bit of vanity. And he says, yet it's all to no end, to inevitable defeat at last, to final defeat, and perhaps driveling imbecility by way of decrepitude. And now, I think Jack's buzz is completely destroyed at this point. Mm. We've taken Jack straight back to chapter two of this book. (laughs) By way of decrepitude, if not to an early death, then to old age and loss of health, loss of friends, loss of all comforts, when body and mind were least able to stand it, the unbearable separation of husband and wife, and all ineluctable, the necessary common lot. No surprise in this world. Ultimate defeat and death being the only certainty. No surprise. Above all, no joyful surprise. And I'm thinking, he was flying high with his first, like, 25 words. And now I'm sure Jack is pretty much ready to step up and do him mischief. And I'm pretty sure most of the crew are ready to come and put him in a sack and throw him over the side. No joyful surprise. And let's not issue too many spoilers, but he's looking ahead to what might become of ships in general and to the surprise in particular, this is not a nice kind of premonition for the crew. And it, it's funny, Mike, that a couple of chapters ago, we had Jack attracting sort of mild wry looks from the crew of the dromedary on their own quarter deck. And as he was sort of dissing the, the diving bell and dissing the reputation of Edmund Halley in a way, but now it's somebody else committing an even greater false step and getting even more wrath from the onlookers. So a nice, nice little bit of symmetry there. 
There is. There is. And I like that. And we've got a little symmetry as as we're reading this. We're actually in the season of Lent. And we know this Ecclesiastes 12, 8 verse is one where we find it's from that area where we've got that you know sort of dust to dust of Lent. And it has been a theme for Jack, but at least he gets to be the one who's mad, not the people are mad at him at the moment. But this, in the midst of this, Martin kind of, you know, a little stuck here looking at everybody. And the lookout calls, land find on the starboard bow. And so Martin gets to quickly move on and tries to make his point, which I think is what he was ultimately trying to get to, that a man, unlike a ship, has, he says, an immortal part, which will live on with perpetual cleansing and maintenance, leading to a joyful surprise. However, neglect- Good save. Very good save. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then, and it's like he's trying to pay his debt back to Jack here. He says, however, neglect, thoughtless in sobriety and incontinence must end in everlasting death. But he's completely lost his congregation. So he just quickly brings the service to an end. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about the text there, this, this line from Ecclesiastes. Have we got this reference right here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, and I think I just said a bit about it right before this, but um, this Ecclesiastics 12, 18, you know, in, in the New International Version would say meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, meaning, you know, kind of all the things of this world are meaningless. It's where we get um, this phrase dust to dust here that we have, especially in this Lenten season. But the prior seven verses, you know, it's kind of, you know, a lot of, as you said, Ian, kind of what's been going on in Jack's life, what we saw with Hartley and everything. It's basically find God while you're young before all of the fun goes out of life and everyone dies and we're all sort of (laughs) mourning or dying here. So yeah, there is a bit more in here. Wow, it's pretty deep. And as you say, it's it's a core theme for Jack in general throughout the books and especially in these last couple of books. Right, right. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. So they've made this great landfall. It's it's interrupted the divine service. They've made this great landfall. Jack very graciously congratulates Captain Allen, the master of the dromedary, on making such a great landfall. Um, we learn that there's an odd cloud up ahead and it it's a bunch of birds. So we have something enticing for Stephen and, and, uh, and Mr. Martin to pay attention to later on. And he goes into detail. He says, I have a joyful surprise for you, Stephen. Mr. Allen tells me there are countless waterfowl over the silted up Pelusian mouth. My dear, said Stephen, I am perfectly aware of it. The extremity of the Delta is famous throughout the Christian world as the haunt of the purple gallinule, to say nothing of a thousand other wonders of creation. And as I am perfectly aware that you will hurry me away from it at once without the least remorse, as you have done so often before, indeed, I wonder at your being so unfeeling as to mention the place at all. Not really without remorse, said Jack. And he goes on to point out that there is indeed not a moment to lose. They have to be off Mubara well before the full moon. And he carries the whole moral authority, I think, not only of his orders, but also of the kind of piratical intentions of the ship and him. However, he says, if their mission is successful, he's going to give Stephen and Mr. Martin plenty of time for bird watching here and in the Red Sea. I hope they get as many purple gallinules and wonders of creation as they possibly can. But this is Patrick O'Brien. So let's wait and see. Right. Right. Well, speaking of that piratical intent, Jack goes on to ask Stephen what Turks mean by a purse. And then he realizes what his share, if they capture a galley with a 5,000 purse prize, 
that this means that all his troubles at home go away, and it actually goes a long way to restoring his fortune. So he's he's pretty excited about this. And he asked Stephen, you know, what does he think the odds of success are? And Stephen really can't say, but he does say, on the one hand, it's very unlikely we're going to take the enemy by surprise. There's been far too much talk about this. However, there is this new element about the French's deal with the ruler on Mubara, uh, coming to fortify the port, uh, this whole new treasure. And he thinks that Mr. Pocock, who credited that intelligence, is, is no fool. And Jack, you know, says, yep, you know, I thought exactly the same thing. There are still joyful surprises in this world, whatever Mr. Martin <laughs> may say. I've known dozens of them. So here, you know, Jack kind of referring back to the sermon, and he asks Stephen what he thought about it. And Stephen reaffirms what we've kind of just said there, that in fact, it was a thank you offering to Jack. It was Martin trying to pay Jack back and do what Jack had originally asked him to do, to kind of, you know, help curb the dissolute living of the crew here. And while Jack appreciates that intent, he, he says to Stephen that the hands are out of temper, and Mr. Moet is furious. It's because Moet thinks they'll never spend any time prettying the deck again or mining the paintwork that it's been <laughs> now that it's been preached out as a vanity and something leading to the knacker's yard. And Stephen is quite certain that Martin would have made his meaning clearer if he'd not been interrupted. And further, the real problem, according to Stephen, is that, as he says, unless one is a second Bosway. It is perhaps a mistake to use tropes and parallels in this eminently unpoetic age. Oh, now that's one that we can dig into. Uh, Bossuet, tropes and parallels, what might be going on there, Mike? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, on the one hand, this may be O'Brien talk, you know, who's a great user of tropes and parallels, talking about the general yeah. book reading audience of his and perhaps our unpoetical age. So, um, and and then why does he pick out Bosway? You know, this is a French bishop and theologian. He is renowned for his sermons, and, and many people consider him to be one of the most brilliant orators of all time. But if you look yeah. a little bit further into Bosway, you know, we've been having all these discussions about philosophy in this book and Rousseau mm -hmm. and the rights of man. Well, uh, Bosway happens to be the guy who really developed the modern philosophical and theological position of the divine right of kings. And, and sadly, you know, this kind of hammered over a lot of people's heads, but they miss a little bit of Bosway's nuance here. So, you know, Bosway said, yeah, in theory, any government that's legally formed expresses the will of God. Its authority is sacred. Rebellion against it is a crime. But the other side of the coin is he emphasized the dreadful responsibility of the sovereign, that the sovereign is to behave as God's image, govern subjects like a good father, remain unaffected by their power. So, you know, we've got this Bosway usage We've got the philosophy. We've got this thing going on. But being O'Brien, we don't have to dig too deep into the Bosway reference. And in case you're, you're tempted to say, I, I don't get that, we've got Jack to save us. What does Jack do with all of this, Ian? Well, Jack does, as Jack often does, he turns it into a joke and he kind of flips back to Stephen's point about this being an unpoetical age. And he says, well, not so hellfire unpoetical as all that, brother. Rowan 
came out with as fine a thing as I ever heard only this very morning before we rigged church. He and the second mate were looking at the six-pounders, and he said, O ye mortal engines, whose rude throats the immortal Jove's dread clamours counterfeit. Capital! Capital, said Stephen, nodding gravely. I doubt if Shakespeare could have done much better. Of late, he says, I had noticed a very vicious tendency in those two young men, a tendency to indulge in barefaced theft. And of course, the quote about, O ye mortal engines, is... Rowan, the typically unpoetical one, exactly right. Stealing the line directly from Shakespeare. It's from Othello, Act 3, Scene 3. It's Othello himself. And O'Brien, who's setting up Jack's busway joke, digs us in even deeper because this scene, that, that this exact speech in which Othello's reacting to being tricked into believing his wife has been unfaithful to him is a, is a real great echo of another plot that's lingering in these books for Stephen. And Stephen had been thinking about that this morning. But anyhow, the, the joke continues. Jack empties his glass. And now I come to think of it, he says, perhaps you may be mistaken about tropes and parallels too. I caught the illusion directly. And I said to Alan, he means the thunder, I believe. Yes, says Alan. I smoked it at once. Smoked it at once, repeated Jack, smiling pleasantly as the possibility of a brilliant play on the words cannon and smoke hovered in his mind and mike this is what always happens a joke hovers in somewhere in the <laughs> in the presence of jack aubrey's mind quite often doesn't make it to the front of the mind um without some kind of injury though <laughs> even as he turned the matter over it says it was eclipsed by an even better thing perhaps rowan is a second boastway he said his deep fruity intensely amused laugh filled the cabin filled the after part of the dromedary and echoed forward he went scarlet in the face and redder still, Killick and Stephen stood looking at him, grinning in spite of themselves until his breath was gone and reduced to a wheeze. He wiped his eyes and stood up, still murmuring, a second boastway. Oh, Lord. So, Mike, what's going on here? Help us out with this pun that Jack is setting himself up for. Well, it's it's just, I, I mean, O'Brien is so amazing. You know, we can just dig in deeper and deeper and deeper. We've got these allusions to philosophy, to infidelity, Bosway, Othello. But, but we have to stop and ask ourselves, why does Jack find this so funny? And, you know, Stephen would say, you know, this is just another vile clench. Actually, he wouldn't say it yet because that's in the next book. Sorry. <laughs> it's just one of Jack's bad puns. And, and perhaps it is just that. Bosway, you know, the master of the poetical, was himself a canon, that is to say, a priest. Yeah. And now Rowan, who's used Shakespeare's line, is a second canon in this line about the canons and the poetical reference to canons. So now I guess we would say, do we smoke it? <laughs> and I think this has puzzled people for a really long time. But in fact, O'Brien, as he so often does, has set us up for this. He got us ready for it back on Gozo um, when yeah, Jack he did. the yeah. post-captains, right? He was yep. about to make yep. a punt about their names. And then O'Brien says he remembered recently learning that an officer's father was a canon of Windsor, that is to say a priest. And he had flashed out a remark to the effect that no one could be more welcome aboard a ship than that prided herself upon her artillery practice than the son of a gun. 
Now, do we smoke it, right? Only to find the officer receive it coldly (laughs) with no more than a pinched obligatory smile. And of course, he set it up with the whole thing with Alan right before this with the cannon and the thunder and everything. So we might once again not quite find it so funny, but at least we can see into why why Jack is. And and I got a shout out to Gary Sim and Don Seltzer from a 2002 conversation that they had on the gun room of hmssurprise.org. That's the one that helped us smoke this. Thank you, Don and Gary. Oh, great work. Great work. Thanks, Mike. And thank you to Gary and thank you to Don. And by the way, I'll, I'll just take us back to Othello for a minute. We could also, just for fun, point out that Othello's problems with infidelity are all started out by Iago who's a passed-over lieutenant in the midst of a military action with the Turks. And here, Rowan is the second lieutenant with Turks aboard the ship. And maybe you could say this all feels like a scene from the movie A Beautiful Mind with all of the strings that O'Brien set up here connecting everything to everything else. And if you don't like that reference, then reflect that in 2001, the Oscar-winning best picture, A Beautiful Mind, had a main character, John Nash, played by... Dun, dun, dun... Russell Crowe. Mike, there are wheels within wheels within wheels here. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Absolutely love it. Ah, Fantastic. Well, they head up on deck right after dinner as they're slowly pulling into land. And and Stephen and Mr. Martin are very excited about what they might see stepping off the ship here. And everyone is maintaining this usual silence as they listen to the leadsman call out the depths as, you know, it's getting shallower and shallower. But then there's this loud, cheerful hooting from over the side. And Stephen looks down and Harabedian is playing and swimming in the water. He's swimming strongly, keeping up with the ship. He's diving under the ship onto the other side, then back and it's driving Jack crazy. So he orders Harabedian back on board. Uh, he, he wants the silence. So they drop the anchor, salute the fort there, and they're met now with silence. There's there's no acknowledgement. And Jack is terribly affronted, not personally, but on behalf of the Royal Navy. So he sends Moet and Harabedian ashore to find out what in the world they're thinking of. And the fort finally offers a very weak salute, and a few men run out to meet this boat, the gig coming in from the dromedary. And there's a worried civilian Egyptian official who returns on the gig with him. And Jack Jack orders some coffee, but is reminded that their guests can't drink until after sunset. And the Egyptian says that, in fact, they did not expect the dromedary until after Ramadan. So not to worry, the civilians are already, they've got pack animals and supplies, they're ready for this march, but the military officers are not. Murad Bey, the Turkish commanding officer, is an hour or two away in Katia at the mosque. His second-in-command is off on a holy retreat, and, and that second-in-command has the key to the powder magazine, so they couldn't fire the cannons until they went to all the men, got their powder horns, and got enough powder together to load a cannon. Mm. Um, yeah, the Odabashi, who he describes as a brutal soldier, a janissary of about the rank of a bosun, is currently in command, but he can't leave his post without the Bay's order. So Jack realizes he's going to have to go ashore. He'll have to ride to Katya to tell Murad Bay that they've arrived and try to get things moving because he wants to get hiking 
on the way to Suez, crossing that desert. And he asked the Egyptian to arrange horses. So this Odabashi that we're introduced to here, it's actually a title, an Ottoman title, essentially a mm-hmm. corporal in the military here. So one of the Janissaries in the uh, in the Turkish military. Huh, okay. And I wonder if we're going to find out a little bit more shortly about who the Janissaries were and where they came from. But anyhow, it's funny, isn't it? All of the senior people away were left in the company of a non-commissioned officer. I think there's a, there's a bit of a theme coming that's going to be consistent all the way through this chapter. So Jack orders his officers and crew to prepare for what he calls a landing viet armis, a landing with or by force and arms. And they don't get the Latin reference. They don't understand. They smile anyway at the fact that Jack's in such high spirits. And he counts off the provisions that they're going to need for this four-day march across from the mouth of the Nile to the Gulf of Suez. And he asks Killick to lay out his best uniform, but he says, blue pants, he doesn't want to ruin the white breeches by riding. And we get this nice visual description of Jack arriving on deck in the glory of his chilenk, his 100-guinea sword, his Nile medal. And Stephen sees this and notices that he seems to be a cubit taller, increased in moral size as well as in physical size. And Mike, we've, we've had this description of Jack as sort of expanded and enhanced by the prospect of action and the prospect of you know conduct and glory ever since the beginning of Master and Commander. And it's really paying off for him here. So Jack and Hyrabedi and the interpreter get ready to leave. He sees Stephen and Martin and his, he says that his determined face breaks into a smile as he invites them to go ashore with him. And this is a great treat for Stephen and Martin. They weren't entirely taking it for granted that they'd even get to set foot on shore. Martin is absolutely passionately looking forward to exploring the African shore. And he's not put off at all when Jack points out that actually it's Asia. And that if he wants Africa, then that's kind of over to the right. Because, of course, Mike, as, as any high school geography student knows, the, the Nile is one of the junctions between the traditionally marked out con- continent of Africa and the continent of Asia. So here we are. We're about to step ashore. Stephen and Martin have the prospect of setting foot among the natural glories of the Nile Delta. The crew of the dromedary and Jack's forces are all about to go ashore. Um, we're ready for the campaign to begin. But since Jack has been thinking about provisions, Mike before the sun gets any higher in the sky, perhaps we ought to take a break for provisions of our own. What do you say? Ah, great idea. Let's do it. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lubbers hole. Welcome back. I hope you're well provisioned here. Uh, They're certainly going to need it back in our story because when they get on land, they're hit harder by the heat. They don't have this breeze that they had on the sea. They've got these enormous fat black flies. Now, Jack meets the Odabashi and notes that he might be the ugliest greenish yellow face in the Muslim world. The Odabashi is trying to express to Jack that he would like him to come past the gate for a welcoming ceremony, but Jack is having none of it. He is in a hurry and blowing right past him. The Odabashi tries to yeah. explain again through the interpreter Harabedian why he cannot send for the bay. You know, he's been ordered not to disturb the bay. And Jack has all kinds of unkind words for him and heads for the Egyptian, 
waiting with the horses and a young boy who's going to be their guide to Katya. And this is, I, I just enter my glory now here because as they get there, there are <laughs> two small bay Arabian horses and one large golden mare, 16 hands high, they say. Uh, O'Brien writes, it's one of the most beautiful creatures Jack had ever seen. His heart went out to her at once, and she, for her part, was very willing to make his acquaintance, bringing her fine-cut little ears to bear and taking a most intelligent interest when he asked her how she was. And and I will say, personal experience, Jack, is not at all wrong here. Arabs are amazing. (laughs) I'm completely (laughs) objective on this, even though my Arabian is my partner, Khan Khalil here, my chestnut Arabian. Um, And I've had Arabians pretty much... For, for all my riding life, they're they're just wonderful here. Oh, and, and it's a happy place, isn't it? But small child as a guide and beautiful horses. This is O'Brien giving us all the signals of kind of well-being and companionship here. It's really, really great. Yes. So they're about ready to set off. And Jack says, okay, we've all been camped in tents. It's time to strike the tents. Everyone's got to get fed. We've got to get ready to march when I come back after sunset because he's off to go and see Murad Bay first. As he mounts his horse to set off to meet Murad Bey, the Odabashi, the green, yellow-faced, ugly guy, seizes the stirrup and helps him up. And Jack, in passing, notices that he hears something that sounds like, big palm, my lord. And he doesn't take any more notice of it. He thanks him, says he's probably honest but stupid. And Stephen asks if he, Stephen and Martin, can take their camels to set their feet in Africa. And Jack's in fine mood here he says gather posies by the score so long as you take care not to be devoured by lions or crocodiles which is even more important so long as you are back here in time (laughs) i'm like this is this is hermione granger from the world of harry potter there is such a thing as worse than death and that's being late (laughs) right that's right that's right so off they go. They head off around the Bedouin encampment. Jack's very, very happy with the conduct of this horse. He says that the mare holds her head up and whinnies. And out from the encampment comes a gross figure in a dirty nightshirt and a long grey beard. Waves and she whinnies again, looking steadfastly at him. And the boy explains with Harabedian interpreting that this gross figure in the dirty nightshirt is the heaviest man in the northern wilderness and the horse is his it was thought most suitable for you meaning a remark about jack's size and uh, and weight and jack thinks well there's nothing like candor he's absolutely not in a mood to be uh, to be insulted and jack asks the mayor to carry him to katia just an hour or two and he'll bring her right back to the fat man he's certain that she understands and off she starts moving out He's amazed, it says, at how easily she carries him as if he were a child. The boy had gone ahead and the mare seems to fly across the desert when Jack lets her. He says, having given her her head, the horse galloped faster than Jack had ever known with this same effortless, even perfection. And this is nice for Jack because he's enjoying being aboard a horse that's in fine shape and galloping in this beautifully smooth stride. And also, he's getting some breeze. He's getting cooled down for what must be the first time in days. He says he had never felt such a good rider. In fact, never had he ridden so well. And the horse, not even breathing hard at this point, and Jack inquires what her name is. He discovers that her name is Yamina. And wonders to himself that maybe if they are successful, 
and he can tempt the Odin with wealth, he'll buy her and have the Aubrey kids learn to ride on board Yamina and thinks she could even reconcile Sophie with horses. And might we learn that Yamina is an Arabic name for girls that means blessed or bringer of blessings. And that, that sounds like it's an echo of your experience with Arabians. Oh, yeah. No no question about that. Ah, and oh, Especially those of us who are no good become great with great horses. <laughs> you know, Jack's riding along and it gets into a bit of a reverie. He's thinking in his mind that how much he just now longs for his mission success with his whole being. And he's thinking that even though he turned the French out of Marga, he, he really credits that to luck and to his Turkish and Albanian allies. He had sunk the tour good, but he considered that really just a mere slaughter. Um, and he's deeply dissatisfied with himself. He's thinking that his success was based on two or three fortunate actions that happened a long time ago. But now there were younger men, men like young host, for example, O'Brien writes, junior to him on the post-captain's list, and that these men were more esteemed by the people whose opinion Jack valued. And Jack's kind of back into these dark thoughts again. O'Brien writes, it was as though he were running a race, a race in which he had done fairly well for a while after a slow start, but one in which he could not hold his lead and was being overtaken, perhaps from a lack of bottom, perhaps from lack of judgment, perhaps from lack of that particularly nameless quality that brought some men success when it just eluded others, though they might take equal pains. And he's saying that, you know, Jack couldn't put his finger on what that was. And, and he thought maybe it was maybe fate, maybe the other side of good luck, you know, that, that good luck he'd had early in his youth, maybe just a restoration of the average. But O'Brien writes, but there were other days when he felt that his profound uneasiness was an undeniable proof of the false existence. And that although he himself might not be able to name it, it was clear enough to others, particularly those in power. At all events, they had given many of the good appointments to other men, not to him. He's He's been in this kind of self-doubting frame of mind a few times before, hasn't he, Mike? And he's also been in this frame of mind um, think, thinking about race metaphors and horse riding metaphors as well. So this is familiar territory, but it's really nagging away at him. It's not something that he finds it easy to shake off, the idea that he's, his luck and his conduct and his character are sort of deserting him somehow. And he's got all these ongoing nagging doubts. This reference to young host, Mike, I think um, was actually also mentioned in Desolation Island um, for having fighting spirit. This is um, a guy called Sir William Host, who was, uh, we learn, a, a brilliant young protege of Nelson, which sounds a lot like Cochrane and therefore sounds a lot like Aubrey. Uh, was made post in 1804, which is about the same time that Jack, in his real timeline, was made post, and served under Sir Sidney Smith in the Mediterranean squadron. And Marga, in the Ionian mission, we think might be modelled after one of Host's own victories. So, well done, Anthony Gary Brown, in the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, for picking some of these insights out for us. And Mike, it's another fascinating example, isn't it, of Patrick O'Brien pulling out life episodes and also characteristics of a real life serving officer and, and personifying them in Jack Aubrey. And it adds all this kind of depth and reality to Jack. Um, I, I got to say, I hear echoes as well of the character of Cochrane, this kind of restless, 
ambition and maybe even tinged with a bit of paranoia that if he doesn't look out at some point he's going to drift away and be less esteemed than the other people around him yeah yeah very much so and and i love this way that o'brien picks these things out of the lives of these real life captains but then references them as characters in the story just to say this is not a sleight of hand i'm being very clear very transparent about where this comes from i just love that yeah, it's great. So, in due course, they arrive at Katya. Yamina has carried Jack across the dunes, and they ride slowly past a rubbish heap, and two different kinds of vultures fly up, and Jack asks what they are. Pharaoh's hens and sons of filth is how they're described by their boy who guides them. I hope the doctor sees them, says Jack. He loves a singular bird, whatever its parentage. <laughs> And we're, I think we're invited to wander for a minute about just what spectacular, rare, and exotic creatures Stephen and Martin are encountering, but we'll come back to them in a moment. They go to a fine coffee house with men smoking hookahs, and the boy goes to tell Murad Bey that they're there. And since they're sitting waiting, Harabedian says, since you're only Christians, <laughs> you can eat and drink. And Jack doesn't want to be uncivil. He doesn't want to vex the Bey who's fasting because it's Ramadan. And Mike, we had another bit of uh, Patrick O'Brien turcophilia here. We meet Murad Bey. He comes straight in and shakes Jack's hand in the European manner. He reminds Jack of Sihan Bey. And again, we get this appellation of somebody being a candid, straightforward Turk, the kind of person that Jack Aubrey likes to do business with and that Patrick O'Brien, I think, clearly admires as well. Yeah, yeah. Not not as as we often hear about the, the devious, the Oriental style of negotiation. It's not one of those. It's one of the yeah. ones he loves here. Absolutely. And the Bay is just like almost welcomes Jack like a long lost friend. I mean, he comments on Jack's uniform, uh, sees his now medal, says that he was at Accra with Lord Smith when Bonaparte was defeated. And, and you know, in kind of true hospitality, invites Jack in to smoke tobacco with him. Um and they had this conversation. Murad Bey is trying to, to urge Jack to wait until after Ramadan since there's janissaries, these you know, troops that he's going to send along with him. They really they can't drink during the day and they'd be marching across the hot desert. That just wouldn't work out. Yeah. Jack says, nope, he plans to march at night because there's not a moment to be lost. And the Bey loves his kind of youthful enthusiasm. And he agrees, okay, that being the case, I'll ride straight back with you. You know, let's grab a little something to eat because I've been fasting all day once it's time. And then I'll get the Odabashi, have him pick some troops and they'll be ready to go with you tonight. But we'll be sure to have him pick men who are not afraid of spirits or night demons since the desert is full of them. So they're still talking about Accra. We've we've had a, this reference to Accra and, and to Sidney Smith before, and we found yet another character that wants to chat to Jack about the old days with Sir Sidney Smith. Jack, though, wants to ride faster to get back to eat his meal and go. The desert that had seemed to be deserted on the ride over now seems to teem with life. And we've got this reference to spirits or night demons a couple of sentences ago still ringing in our ears as we read about all the dark creatures crossing the desert landscape in front of them. There's a fat serpent that makes Jack's horse rear up. Jack hears screams in the distance and uh, and wonders if some of these are spirits and night demons. And the bay says, well, some of them are jackals and a hyena. And then he points out a mound, which he says is occupied by a djinn. A djinn, he says, with long upright ears, 
and terrible orange eyes lives there and there's a cistern with a troop of ghouls. So it's not obviously easy to explain away these creatures as creatures of nature, long upright ears and terrible orange eyes. This sounds like some kind of terrible spirit beast. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how you you know we're we're starting to get this and we're, we're going to continue on this thing of of what sounds like superstition, but then you get a guy like Mred Bay who seems to be very easy to you know, pass this off with rational explanations. Except now these others over here, nah, not so. And and you know I think we're building up here. You know they get back to the fort. Um, they arrive, everybody's broken the fast now. They're all sitting around in this great big regimental fire. Uh, Brian takes pains to point out that they do it in the Turkish style where everybody eats together, the officers and the men seated around this one fire. Uh, Stephen and Martin are seated with the regimental Hakim, the wise man or physician. And mm. They're having coffee afterwards. Jack asked Stephen, how'd the camel trip to Africa go? <laughs> and they're, they're a bit reluctant to tell him about it. And it turns out that Martin's camel bit him and then ran away. He was afraid he would get syphilis from the bite because camels are somehow renowned for passing syphilis on. Never heard of that. But the Akeem uh, dressed it with a skink lizard oil. And Stephen's camel <laughs> wouldn't kneel. So they had to lead it back, running half the time to be sure to get back on time. Uh, he kept pressing them. So what, you know, what birds did you see? And they finally, you know, allow us how they only saw a few birds, all of them common in England. And, and they had a really hard time seeing them at all because their their eyes were squeezed closed by all the mosquito bites on their faces. This has been terrible. But Stephen says he's kind of excited because he believes that there is an eagle owl about. He's seen its droppings and the Egyptian that guided them had imitated its call, this call that goes, ooh, 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 wish I could do that better. You know, it's a call <laughs> calculated to strike terror into mammals as large as gazelle. O'Brien writes. Oh, boy. So I wonder if we're going to get to meet an eagle owl. I think we feel bad just temporarily, just momentarily for Stephen and Martin, who found plain old regular English and British birds. Meanwhile, everybody's getting ready to depart. Murad Bey orders the Odabashi, the corporal, to pick five men to escort Captain Aubrey and his men on their journey to Suez. He tells him to go with the dragoman with Harabedian to meet the English officer of the same rank. And Mike, this is one of my favourite passages in the canon. This is this is just great. This is on a par with Jack meeting the American officer in the uh, insane asylum in Boston. I love this. Right. Hyrobedian introduces the Odabashi to Mr. Holler the bosun, to Mr. Borel the gunner, and Mr. Lamb the carpenter who are drinking tea in the warrant officer's tent. Hyrobedian leaves him to mess with them. And as usual, like any British person speaking to foreigners... The bosun invites him in a loud voice to have a cup of tea. Tea! Cha! And we get no response from the Odabashi. The bosun comments that he looks more like an ape than a human. And then suddenly we get the Odabashi springs to life. Ape! cried the Odabashi, stung out of his shyness. You can put that where the monkey put the nuts. You ain't no oil painting yourself neither. Stunned silent. The bosun asks if the Odabashi speaks English. Not a f***ing word, says the Odabashi. 
No offence intended, mate, says the bosun, and they shake hands. <laughs> so, beg palm, my lord, was a real thing. The Odabashi speaks English with very much what seems like a cockney um, twang to his dialect. So, the warrant officers decide that they need to inquire how it comes to pass that the Odabashi knows English. And we get the story of the Odabashi's life. He says, when he was young, Janissaries, that's these tur- Turkish uh, legionaries, um, rounded up all the good Christian boys in places like Bosnia and Albania. He says, the, the other ones being what you might call scum. <laughs> and they were taught to be Muslims and good soldiers. And most of these Janissaries forgot their native tongue, forgot their religion and forgot their people. But his mother was a cook made from London who had gone into service with a Turkish family, gone to their home country where she met and married his father, who was a local. His father, the Turkish guy, died, and the cousins put her, the mother, out of the shop, and she had to sell cakes from a stall. And the cousin's lawyer's clerk took the young guy, the soon-to-be Odabashi, and sent him off to janissary school to learn how to be a Turkish soldier. And his mum followed him around the Ottoman Empire. She found him and set up a stall nearby, and they met and talked, we learn, at least once a week. And she followed him on all of his early assignments. So he kept his native tongue and his Cockney dialect even while he was learning a new one, even while he was being kind of uh, indoctrinated into being a member of the uh, the regiment of Janissaries. And Mike, I, I, there are loads, there's loads that I love about this, apart from the fact that the dialogue is so funny. I, I love the fact that the Odabashi and his mum are so well-traveled. And it was striking me as I was looking through this that there are lots of Patrick O'Brien characters, the ones that he likes the most, who are sort of out in the world. They're well-traveled. They don't settle in one fixed place. So we think about people like Diana. We think about all the naval officers. We think about people who roam the world. We think about some of the intelligence characters that we meet. They're all sort of unsettled nomads, but enjoying being out in the world and they're citizens of the world. And the least sympathetic characters are maybe the ones who end up anchored and stuck in one place and adhering to one set of values. So I think of people like Mrs. Williams. I think of uh, Mr. Herapath Sr. in Boston, who's a bit parochial and a bit set in his ways. Yeah, I I, I love that. I, I love how O'Brien does that. I agree with that. And I can't help but thinking how much more fun Game of Thrones would have been if one of Grey Worm's Unsullied had spoken Cockney off duty. <laughs> <laughs> good call I don't know, that's going to be worth somebody making a quick internet overdub for us i wonder we, if any other listeners can get on that <laughs> well the the bosun hears this story out you know i think all these warrant officers are kind of amazed here and, and the bosun speculating maybe you know maybe they sent the odabashi here because of his english and the odabashi says well if that's true he'd rather have his tongue cut out because he hates being in the countryside. He really prefers the city. And, and they go through this long list of, you know, is it lions and tigers? No, no, it's none of that. He doesn't like gins and ghouls. And, and they don't know what they are. And he's trying to explain it. And he finally says, well, they're kind of like fairies, but, but they don't really believe in fairies. And he says, well, you know, you better believe in this. And he says, you know, there's this sound. And when you hear it, this, ooh, 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 ooh. Every time you hear that, somebody dies. And, and he's been hearing it now every night for the past week. And then kind of looking at their faces. And then he says, wait, wait, you know what? They're really more like spirits than fairies. 
And now he's got them because as O'Brien tells us, you know, sailors most heartily believed in ghosts and spirits. Oh, he's, he's really tapped into their core superstitions here, hasn't he? It's great. They're, they're curious now. They're not just, you know, fairies is, a, is an idea that you can dismiss, but ghosts and spirits, that's something that taps into their really primal fears. The gunner asks for more. He says the, the ghouls, the ghouls are worse. They take the form of young females green inside the mouths and the eyes, digging up graves, eating corpses. But they take all sorts of shapes, says the Odabashi, like the jinns. And you meet them both at every turn in this bloody desert we got to walk across. The only thing to do is to say, transients per medium me bat. Very quick, without his mistake or your... And then he's cut off. He doesn't get to finish. Because the cooks, having just thrown all the bony remains of the soldiers' feast over the outer wall, call up a sudden bedlam of screaming, howling, and terrible laughter. The surprises warrant officers leapt to their feet, grasping one another. And as they stood there, aghast, a heavy body landed on the pole above them. A moment later, its enormous voice filled the tent. Woohoo! 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 <laughs> so, finally, I, I, I don't know how many of us as readers managed to keep separate in our minds the idea that there are an, animals and beasts and birds in nature and ghouls and demons and jinns and spirits and that eventually the two are going to get brought together. But if that that kept you going for at least a little while you'll have really loved the payoff very very funny a classic o'brien thing i think to make humor out of people's superstitions and to have an animal story thrown in as well and, and mike there's, there's, there's another allusion for us to dig into here the words of the incantation <laughs> that the odabashi says you have to speak out loud transients per medium illorum ibat they're from the Bible. They're from um, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. Um, Jesus has been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Our heroes are about to march off into the wilderness, the desert of sin. And in the Bible, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth, reads the book of Isaiah, describing the Messiah in the synagogue. And Jesus says that the people will ask him for a miracle, tells them that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So they get mad at him and they drive him up a hill to throw him off a cliff. And that's where this verse comes in. It means in Latin that Jesus departed, passing through the middle of them. Or you might also say, walked right through the crowd. And that's what Jesus does in this episode in Luke. They don't touch him. And by the way, in the next verse, we get a reference to an evil spirit in Capernaum. But also, Mike, this tag about transients per medium illorum about Jesus walked off through the middle of the crowd among them is also on the back of English gold coins from the medieval times commemorating a naval battle the the noble was an english gold coin it was first produced in quantity during um the reign of king edward iii so we're talking about the 1300s the 14th century um it had uh, derivatives the half noble and the quarter noble um but its standard obverse markings were first of all a ship and second of all the biblical text transients per medium illorum ibat and the image of the ship and the biblical text are both meant to commemorate Edward III's victory at the Battle of Sluis in 1340, which was a naval battle. <laughs> so, it's, Mike, it's amazing. You, you, just, you just dig a little tiny layer after a little tiny layer, and we get connections to things that make sense in terms of all the biblical and classical allusions, and they make sense in terms of the naval history, and they make sense in terms of, you know, you can imagine an ancient gold coin having been kind of to be found and to be exchanged in markets in 
early 19th century Turkey. It kind of, you can just about imagine that somebody might have seen an English gold coin and that the, that these very ancient, very important prophetic words on the back of the coin are somehow then associated with an incantation to ward off evil spirits. Oh, it's great stuff. I love it. I do love it. And it would have been perfect for O'Brien to end the chapter right here with his ooh, 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 and, you know, everybody wrapped up around each other. But, but that's not the last voice we hear in chapter five. Chapter five ends saying, a frozen silence inside the tent and a startled silence outside followed the last ooh-hoo. And in this silence, they heard a still larger voice cry, strike that tent up forward there. Do you hear me? Where's the bosun? Pass the word for the bosun. Mr. Mowat, the first party may light its lantern and stand by to move off. So the last voice we hear is Jack, ready to march into the desert. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It's, it's funny, Mike, you and I were both saying this chapter, you kind of read it thinking, oh, it's quite lighthearted. I can't wait to get to the bit with the Odabashi. But there's loads to dig into here. Right. And this juxtaposition of, of, of Jack and his worries about not quite making it as an officer versus the relative kind of, there's the contentment, the happy kind of comfy atmosphere of all the warrant officers that we spent time among. It's a really, really great chapter. And Mike, plenty of questions still in front of us. What's going to happen to this superstitious bunch as they march through the desert at night? They've heard all these tales and we know there's all this wildlife around them. How are they going to get by? How are they going to cope with all of these sounds? Um, what's waiting for them on the other side of the desert, that is, if they make it at all? Um, we know from the title of the book and from the atmosphere back in Malta that treachery and treason abounds, but what and where and who? I don't know, Ed. I, th I think we're just going to have to open up Chapter 6 next week. What do you say, Ed, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. That's brilliant. It's, it's almost like the gins and the ghouls were right there with us in the room. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's good. Good, good too much. <laughs>